You're listening to The Pet Factor, news on pet health, wellness, and the latest in veterinary medicine. Welcome to the next episode of The Pet Factor. I'm Dr. Jim Hosek. I'm Brittany. And this week, Brittany, we're going to be talking about the opposite of last week, which Mm -hmm. is hypothyroidism, hyperthyroidism. And hypothyroidism affected dogs. Hyperthyroidism primarily affects cats. Right. Uh, It's the overproduction of thyroid hormone by the thyroid gland. Uh, And people, it's similar to a a condition called Graves' disease, which Mm -hmm. is an autoimmune condition. So um, it's a chronic disease. This is something that builds up over time. So people don't often notice when the symptoms started. They'll just maybe notice, hey, my cat's been uh, losing weight or something like that. Mm -hmm. Usually older cats, but it can be seen as young as four years of age. But most of the cases are going to be eight or older. No sex predilection. Purebred cats are actually less likely to get hyperthyroidism. Really? Just like any purebred or just... Yeah. Purebred cats, it seems like the mixed breed, the domestic short hairs seem to be more often affected Hmm. by it. There has been some association with some diets and some exposure to insecticides, but nothing definitive. So really they don't know what causes this in, in cats. When we see the cats, they're going to come in for a couple reasons. The primary one is going to be weight loss, but they can also have an increased thirst and increased urination. Um, increased appetite is very common, so they'll be eating a lot of food. Hyperactivity, so this is the opposite. When you have too much thyroid hormone, instead of being really lethargic, you can be overactive. Um, nervousness, a lot of times they'll um, have vomiting and diarrhea associated with this. Mm-hmm. An elevated heart rate is very common. Uh, panting because of that elevated heart rate or even secondary to heart disease, a weakness, decreased grooming. So they come in with a matted fur mm-hmm. and they have heat avoidance. The hypothyroid dogs want to be in warm spots. These cats tend to avoid warm spots. They like to be where it's cool because their body temperature is elevated because of the disease. On our physical exam, we're usually going to find a, a very skinny cat. Uh, their hair coat may not be matted, but it'll be unkempt. It'll, it's obvious they haven't been grooming themselves as well. It can be dehydrated because mm-hmm. uh, even though they're drinking a lot of water, their body's just peeing it out as quickly as they, they put it in there. A lot of times we'll see these cats have a heart murmur because they can have secondary heart disease to the hyperthyroidism. Um, an arrhythmia known as atrial fibrillation can occur as well. Um, in their eyes, we can see tortured retinal vessels, retinal tears, or even retinal detachment. Hmm. When we check their blood pressure, that can be elevated, again, because of the increased metabolism. And a lot of times, I can actually palpate these enlarged thyroid glands. Sometimes it's just one. Occasionally, it's two. I've seen them be anywhere from the size of a peanut to the size of a grape. Hmm. And when it gets really big, it actually can interfere with their ability to swallow. Hmm. It can be caused... By enlargement of the thyroid gland over too much thyroid tissue or benign thyroid tumors, in less than 2% of the cases, it's a, a, th- a malignant thyroid tumor, a thyroid mm. carcinoma. And like I said, there's been no studies that's been actually able to demonstrate a cause, any factor, whether it's genetic or any other predisposition to it. Mm. We oft- When they come in, we oftentimes are thinking, boy, if they're eating a lot and losing weight, we got to rule out diabetes. Yeah. Inflammatory bowel disease is another disease that can present with those <laughs> same sort of symptoms as well as GI tumors like lymphoma. And when they have the heart murmur and the difficulty breathing, we're going to be worried about primary heart disease, hypertrophic yes. cardiomyopathy as well. When we do the lab test, primarily what we're going to see is elevated T4 thyroid hormone levels. Mm-hmm. It's very distinctive with this. We'll have some cats that'll be double the amount, but I've seen them three, four, five times yeah. the level of thyroid. Those are the easy ones to diagnose. We have other cats where the thyroid levels might be in the upper end of normal, but they are very symptomatic. We'll do a free T4 test. 
If that's elevated, that will clinch okay. the diagnosis for them. It's not unusual to see these cats have elevated liver enzymes, again, because of the increased metabolism. Rare cases, we can see the, the blood urea, nitrogen, and creatinine, which are associated with the kidneys be elevated, or bilirubin, again, which is elevated with the liver, but not that commonly. Yeah. On our EKGs, we might see arrhythmias, an echocardiogram, or what we're doing now, the focused cardiac ultrasound, can detect this enlargement in the heart, primarily a thickening of the left ventricle, so a thickening of the heart muscle. And that's uh, that test, the focus cardiac ultrasound is great at picking that up. Mm. But you really need an echocardiogram to definitively diagnose that. When we're treating these cats, we're going to certainly manage any underlying disease first. So the heart disease is the primarily one, so we want to deal with that. The most common thing we'll do is put them on what's called a beta blocker, which will slow their heart rate down. Okay. When their heart's beating very fast and the ventricle can't hold a lot of blood, their cardiac output goes down. So if we give the, slow the heart rate down and give the heart more time to fill, then each beat pumps more blood and is a little bit more effective for them, and that can help relieve a lot of those symptoms. The primary medication we'll use to treat these cats is called methimazole, yeah. and we have it in three major forms. Most cats, we can maybe give a tablet to or a liquid. Mm -hmm. Tablets, if you can give your cat tablets, that's the cheapest way to do it. Um, otherwise, we can have it made into a liquid form, chicken flavored, I think, liver flavored? Yeah, we have chicken and liver. We've got great flavors for this. <laughs> we can make it any flavor you want, so just ask. And that's going to be a twice-a-day medication. For cats who just can't take oral <laughs> medications, and there are some, they actually make it in what's called a transdermal medication. Mm -hmm. And we, we talked about this before, but you actually use a little rubber uh, slip cover that goes over your finger, mm -hmm. finger cot, to rub this on the surface of their ear, or a special dispensing pen that you dial it. Yeah. It puts a little medication out on the tip of the pen, and you rub that on the inside of the ear. Mm -hmm. Careful that you don't touch it, because it'll be absorbed into your skin, yeah. too. This is effective in about 85% of cats that get it. Not all cats will absorb it properly to get the, the right dose in. You do one ear in the morning, the other ear in the evening. Yep. Makes it very simple. The easiest way, I think, to manage these cats, if, especially if this is the only cat in the household, is this prescription diet. Yeah. It's from Hills. It's called YD. They were running out of The T was already used, so they had to go to the <laughs> next letter, which was the Y. And it's restricted in iodine. So thyroid hormone needs iodine to be synthesized. If the thyroid gland doesn't have enough iodine, it can't make too much thyroid hormone. So they figured out the exact amount of iodine need that needs to be in the diet to prevent these cats from becoming hyperthyroid. Mm. And again, about 85% successful in the cats that do it. It can take four to six weeks to get the thyroid levels down to a level that's normal. So would they be eating the food and taking the medication during that period? They, six, no, just the, food? just the food is all they need. Oh, okay. If they're already on the medication, they can take the food as well. I've had some cats where we've done both. Or if you're switching them, for, they're having trouble giving the pills, you want to try the food, you can just switch right over. Okay. In some cases where you can't give them the medication or the diet's not working, we've got a couple other options. One is surgical removal of the thyroid gland. And that's especially effective if just one thyroid gland is effect, uh, effective. It can be kind of risky because a lot of these cats do have heart problems. Yeah. Um, the surgery is being done on the neck right near the, uh, the blood vessels and the nerves. So you have to be very careful. And there's a small gland right next to the thyroid called the parathyroid. And if that gets damaged... That can cause some severe side effects, primarily seizuring because of low mm. calcium levels. There's two parathyroids, there's two thyroids. So in a cat, if you do damage one, the other one starts to take over it, but sometimes they need some supportive care. 
But most of the time, if you get the surgery done properly, you shouldn't have any uh, problems with that. Hmm. We used to do a lot of these, but with the, the newer forms of the medication, especially the transdermal, it's been less like less Yeah, than one of the other do doctors that. said back in the day that they used to always do the surgery and you right. never had medications or special food. Well, so. before we were using methimazole, we used another medication called propothiouracil, and that was really bad side effects. Uh. Methimazole can have some side effects in cats. It in itself can cause vomiting and diarrhea. It can suppress the bone marrow in about one to two percent of the cats. So those are cats that, if they can't take the medication, certainly surgery would be an option. The third option is the radioactive iodine treatment. Um, This is where they will go into a special practice. They this is all they do is treat cats with radioactive iodine, Hmm. and they'll do an evaluation of them. They have to make sure they have good kidney function because if they don't, they can't clear the radioactive iodine from their body once it's done its job. But the thyroid gland will. will take this radioactive iodine right into the gland. So it concentrates in there. And when it's in there, it starts killing off excess thyroid tissue. So do they, like, inject it? I think they inject it. Um, I don't think it's given orally, but I think it's injected IV. So IV, okay, so the cat can be awake during this? Yeah, cats awake during this. They have to be kept in the place for a day or two. And then the owners have to collect their litter for a couple weeks in biohazard bags. Because it's radioactive. Oh yeah, it's very mild, so it's not going to be toxic to the people, but they can't dispose of it in our garbage like you would with regular litter. Hmm, so you'd have, if you had other cats, you'd have to separate them because the other cats couldn't use the litter. Right. Right. Huh. You, you wouldn't want them to be exposed to that. So could the, so if the cat, I'm, I'm sorry, this is going to get me. So if the cat uses the litter box, if it's radioactive and it comes out and like jumps on furniture or something, like, is there something on, do I have to do like, Take care of my furniture then? If or? they were to pee or poop on the furniture, then you'd have to collect that. So I'd probably have to, like, burn my couch then? Yes. Or? Well, you wouldn't what? burn it. You'd, you'd call the radio pet and they'd tell you what to do. Probably bag the cushion bag. and they'd dispose of wow. it. Wow. Right. But most cats aren't, aren't like that, so it shouldn't be a problem. Huh. The treatment lasts at least two years in most cats, which, since most of these cats we're treating are older cats, that's probably going to be the yeah. rest of their lifespan anyway. But they can be retreated if needed. When we're managing these cats going forward, we're going to monitor these T4 levels. Initially, we might do it after about a month or six weeks if they're on the YD diet, and then once or twice a year. And then once a year, I do like to do a full blood panel on them. It's a good idea just anyways because they're older cats, but we want to also watch for that bone marrow suppression to decrease red cells or white cells yeah. because of the methimazole if they're on that medication. Uh, if they've had the surgery, we're going to be watching the calcium. And sometimes they can actually become hypothyroid with the surgery. So sometimes they need thyroid supplement. But usually the other thyroid gland starts to kick in. If you do have to take out both thyroid glands, then they do need to be on thyroid supplement like you do with a dog. Hmm. We're going to watch their weight. Um, you'll probably see their weight come up and their appetite go down because now their metabolism is getting back to a normal level. Like with the dogs, we definitely want a fasted sample. And generally, when we're doing blood samples, if you think your pet needs to have a blood sample, don't feed them that morning. Yeah. It makes it much easier to interpret those samples. With the surgery, we're going to be monitoring the calcium a little bit more frequently. So we might do it every day for a few days afterwards mm. to make sure it's not getting too low and make sure that they have calcium supplements in case it does. Mm. Treatment is usually very successful. Most of these cats rebound and do very well. And other illnesses can be occur, and so usually... They respond well to the medication. They're going to end up dying from kidney failure or cancer or something down the road. But this can be managed very easily. And we don't want people to think, boy, I can't get my cat a pill twice a day. We have all these other options. So if your cat is diagnosed with hyperthyroidism, um, it's reversible and they can do very well with it. 
So then we're going to move on to our pet health news section. Okay, this is uh, a warning from the CDC, the Center for Disease Control. So the U.S. Center for Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and public health officials in several states are investigating a multi-state outbreak of a multi-drug-resistant human Campylobacter jejuni infection linked to contact with puppies from pet mm-hmm. stores. Campylobacter is, a, bag, is a, a bacteria in the intestinal tract that can be pathogenic and cause bad symptoms. Mm. The investigators that are using this thing called PulseNet system, which is a nationwide network of public health laboratories, to identify illnesses that are part of the outbreak. As of December 17th, there was a total of 30 cases reported um, from 13 states. Mm. Minnesota and Ohio were the highest hit. Um, Nevada, Kentucky, and Utah had a two to four cases, and then Wyoming and Illinois, where we are, Tennessee, Connecticut, Maryland, South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida, each had one. Hmm. And they're maintaining a map of this online if you want to follow that. And these are coming from puppy store. Hmm. This is what they think. What they found was um, four people were hospitalized, but no one's died from this. And are these like people coming in stores? Do they say, or like in store workers? Well, what they found is it's people that came in contact with puppies and pet stores were a majority of the cases. So it can be employees, hmm. and it can be people who bought puppies from the store, or just didn't there looking at puppies. Oh. Um, these the the thing that's worrying them the most is these bacteria showing resistance to a lot of different antibiotics. Mm. Now, in most cases, people will recover from this without any extra treatment, but if it gets really severe and you need an antibiotic, you may have some trouble yeah. getting something that's going to be effective for you. When they uh, they interviewed 24 people, and it, like I said, 21 of them had reported contact with a puppy in a pet store. Wow. There's one pet, specific pet store that was being affected, uh, and that was called Petland. But they haven't traced it to any particular breeder or dog source. Um, They're advising all pet owners to do these following things. Mm -hmm. One, wash your hands thoroughly with soap and water after touching their puppy or dog, handling their food or cleaning up after them, Mm -hmm. which is common sense anyway. Pick up and dispose of dog poop, especially in areas where children might play. Mm -hmm. Contact your veterinarian if you notice any signs of illness in your puppy or dog. Because they can get sick from this as well. And within a few days of getting a new puppy or dog, make sure you take it to the veterinarian for a health checkup. And if they are having any diarrhea, let them know. I'll say, is that the main symptom of it, the diarrhea? Or is it like vomiting, it's gonna diarrhea, be, It's going to be diarrhea. It's going to be the main symptom. Okay. So they're continuing to investigate. They'll give us some updates when they have more information. So if we get anything else, we'll pass that along to our listeners. Yeah. Okay, this next story is kind of interesting. <laughs> I like to call myself a cat whisperer because cats seem to really do very well with me, <laughs> and I can get them to do things that other vets and techs can't. So um, when I have people come in that are really surprised or cat doesn't do it with a vet and I do well with them, they, <laughs> I just tell them I'm a cat whisperer. But they did this study where they're trying to see how people could read cats' expressions. Okay. So they did this research in the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada, and what they did is they wanted to investigate the extent to which humans can decode cats' emotions from their facial expressions. Hmm. So they actually got over 6,000 participants from 85 countries, and they had them each watch 20 YouTube videos of cats. And they were um, operationalized videos depicting cats in either a negative or a positive emotional state. Hmm. So none of the videos depicted obvious facial expressions, such as open mouths or flattened ears, although all the videos focused on the cat's eyes, muzzles, and mouths. Most participants performed very poorly. So on their test, they averaged a score of being basically barely above chance. Um, They were 11.85 points out of 20. So by chance, they should have gotten 
um, maybe 20% of them, right? So 12 points or yeah, about 10 points. So they're a little bit above that. So that means they were guessing yeah. probably and they just happened to get a few more <laughs> right than normally. 13% of the participants, however, did very well and they got 15 points out of 20. Okay. So that's much better than average. Women were more successful at this than men. Younger participants seem to do better than older. Hmm. And persons that are professional working with them with veterinary experience did better. So I got okay. one out of three. Okay. Yeah, I'm so not young and I'm not a woman. So. Like you're not oldest out there. So, you're so they dubbed these group of people cat whisperers. <laughs> and the fact that the women scored better was, was pretty consistent with previous research that showed women appear to be better at decoding nonverbal displays of emotion in humans and in dogs. Hmm. So the ability to read animals' facial expressions is critical to welfare assessment. So when we can see if a cat's happier or sad. Okay. Our finding that some people are outstanding at reading these subtle clues suggests it's a skill that more people can be trained to do, is okay. what the researchers are um, assuming from this study. And what makes this research unique and different from other studies that have exclusively focused on animals' aggressions, expressions of pain, this study is the first to look at the assessment of a wider range of negative emotional states, including fear and frustration, as well as the positive emotional states. Okay. So I don't know if they still have these videos up. It'd be one thing that would be cool to test me on that and see how I do. But <laughs> um, if you are good at reading your cats, and 13% of you of you are, and it's not necessarily even cat owners. It can yeah. be people who aren't even involved with cats. Yeah, usually when I read my cat, it's mostly he's hungry. So I don't think I do very well at that test. Yeah, so those, those, those other cues, the hissing <laughs> and stuff that pretty much everyone can pick up. All right, this is a neat a bit of research that came out of Sweden, all right? So what they did is they are, did a study, and they determined that positive interactions with dogs help reduce stress levels. And they did this using fur samples, and we're going to explain how they did this. So like humans, dogs and other animals, when they experience stress, they have a decrease in their cortisol levels. And this can lead to behavioral problems, excessive defecation, urination, especially problems with children. So the researchers who explore canine stress encounter a lot of difficulties, and it's difficult to gather quantitative data from the animals. So people watching them to see if they can pick up the stress. Again, goats to the cat whispers. (laughs) We're not very good at picking that up. And the animals themselves aren't going to be able to answer the questionnaires like people would. So what they did is they found that dogs secrete the cortisol when under stress just like people, and they found that the cortisol levels are incorporated into their growing hair. So they can analyze fur samples from the dogs to be able to get quantitative data on the level of stress the dogs were feeling. Hmm. So you clip the fur, you measure the, the as it goes along, and they can go by time and tell them when they were having the most stress. Wow. So they gathered hair samples from 59 German Shepherds in January, May, and September, so about every four months. And meanwhile, the dog's owners were answered a series of questionnaires, and they provided data on the dog's personalities, behaviors, and lifestyles. Okay. So they weren't actually able to assess the dog. They were just getting general information out. And the results showed that dogs that had more positive interactions with their owners had significantly lower levels of cortisol. Mm-hmm. Two of the most prominent um, interactions were playing with the dog and rewarding with a uh, treat or toy when the dog behaved correctly. So just doing obedience work yeah. is a positive interaction for the dogs. So just having a dog sit around and taking it for a walk is not the kind of positive interactions they're looking at. They really need this play. It seems kind of common sense, but here we've got actual data that shows less stress in these dogs that are having yeah. these interactions. 
So there has actually been several studies that have shown that having a, a dog or a pet in general has positive effects on people's overall health. Yeah. They encourage an active lifestyle. Mm-hmm. They help with rehabilitation from illnesses. Mm-hmm. And there are several hospitals that have rehabilitation centers that use dogs as part of the patient healing process. And there's that one that had the dog, the horse. The horse. <laughs> Still want to get to that hospital. <laughs> In one study, heart failure patients who interacted with dogs 12 minutes a day had reduced heart rate, blood pressure, and anxiety. So that's 12 minutes a dog. Wow. That's not much. I think most people can tolerate that. <laughs> Most people can tolerate a lot more. I'm yes. sorry. <laughs> dogs are also good at detecting low blood sugar levels. So if you're diabetic, the dogs that live with diabetic owners can determine drops in their blood sugar before the people do. Hmm. And so they said, hey, they might bring them a candy bar. I don't know how they, they deal with that, how they train them. But they encourage their owners to eat when they sense this. So you may not notice it coming, but if your dog says, hey, time to have uh, some food, then you go ahead and But those are like the ones that can sense the seizures coming. All right. But these are, I don't know how they sense a low blood sugar if they're looking at behavioral cues or if they smell something coming off the people. Out, yeah. But they're able to do that. And then animals help relieve stress. Interacting with the animals not only reduces their stress hormones, but our stress hormones as well. And it also release, reduces a hormone called oxytocin, and that's called the love hormone. <laughs> and it increases trust and reduces fear. Playing with your dog has benefits both for them and you. And it would seem logical. Most people have dogs are playing with them all the time. Yeah. But if your dog is not playing or they're acting kind of lethargic, go ahead. Start playing with them or do some obedient stuff. Reward them Mm -hmm. with some treats. Start doing some training classes. That kind of positive interaction, them wanting to please you, is very helpful for them as well. All right. That's all we have for Pet Health News. Let's move on to our case of the week, which is weird because it's actually two pets. (laughs) And this was the weirdest dog I'd ever seen. (laughs) Name was Scout. The dog came in for its annual checkup. The owner had the dog for a couple years. And the dog was missing all the hair on the brown areas of its fur. Yeah. So it was a brown and white dog, and it wasn't, like, continuously brown and white in certain areas. The areas where it was brown, it was just bare skin, mainly its head, but also along its body. And anywhere yeah. where it was white, the fur was absolutely normal. Yeah, beautiful. And the owners, the vet had not been, previous vet had not been able to diagnose it. So I went and looked, and I said, well, what could this be? And there's a syndrome called black hair follicle dysplasia in dogs. And it's a genetic condition, and it causes the melanin pigment in the black hair follicles to start clogging up the hair follicles and preventing the hair from growing. So you can definitively diagnose this by pulling out some hairs from the darker areas and some hairs from the light areas and comparing them under a microscope. You'll see clumps of this melanin on the dark hairs around the base of the hair follicles and not around the whites. So that's just something they have, like, since they're born? Right. They're born with it. It starts to develop after a couple years' age, and the hair just starts falling out. It's not itchy. There's no skin infections, although they are kind of more prone to skin infections. But it's a very interesting condition. There's no treatments that have been uh, found for this, although anecdotally some people have used melatonin. As a way to and gotten some results with this, so this owner was actually taking melatonin for himself to go to sleep. So I said, "Hey, try some with your dog. Maybe and see what happens. Maybe in a few months, he might start growing some hair back." Mm-hmm. Cool. But I've never seen one of these in thirty years of veterinary medicine. And then what happens a couple days later? No, it was literally like two hours later. Two hours later. <laughs> two hours later, another one came. When the in. other vet saw a dog, Frankie. Had the exact same exact, condition. Yeah, because yours was like a little rat terrier. Right. Frankie was like a chihuahua rat terrier mix, and he had long, beautiful white hair. But then there were like certain spots that were naked. Mm-hmm. Like you could tell yep. there should have been hair there. 
And it was the black hair that went missing. And, and the head was not quite as bald as Scout's, but it was starting to get there. Yeah. And this can affect any breed of dog that has the, the bi or tri colors. So mm-hmm. black fur or brown can be affected. But the dogs that kind of got the red, white, and black or the black and white are going to be the ones that are affected by this disease. Very interesting. Um, The dogs are perfectly happy. The owners are happy. (laughs) But sometimes it's nice to know what your animal is suffering from. Okay, there's nothing I can do about this. Mm -hmm. We'll just deal with it. Wear sweaters when it's cold outside, (laughs) and then you're set. Now we're going to move on to tech tips. And because we're in the Christmas time... And we've seen animals eat Christmas decorations and have other (laughs) negative interactions with Christmas decorations. Um, I thought that might be something that you might want to talk about with our listeners. Yes. So as a pet owner myself, you know, I always get questions for people, especially around this time of year, who have puppies and kittens coming into the house. Um, So most people, especially people who are getting back into the swing of having a puppy you know you had a dog for 14 years then get a puppy again right um these are new things to them you know when now everybody has inflatables in their yards um for puppies these are new to them sometimes they're (laughs) terrifying to them the noise they make the noise they make from the fan in them i as again pet owner have two puppies my dogs just freaked out. There's this giant snowman a few houses away from us, and they did not want to cross the street because they knew that snowman was there. <laughs> and it's just like, but you love this house. Like, you want to go past. There's a dog in the window. They love it. They want nothing to do with the house now. So you always got to think for dogs, make it positive. Make it something where they're not stressed out for. If they see an inflatable and it's kind of stressing them out, Go to the other side of the street or, you know, help distract them. Bring a squeaky toy. Um, Bring some treats. Make it a positive reinforcement thing. Um, You always want to try to make sure your dogs aren't hypersensitive anyway. So sometimes doing that noise like that can help desensitize them, especially in the house. So like the blow dryer. So once they've kind of freaked out with the vent outside, I took them home, gave them a bath, and I blow dried them. And again, they kind of freaked out a little bit. But now they're fine with the blow dryer. They still don't trust the seven-foot snowman, which (laughs) is understandable. But they don't react as much as they used to when it was first put up in the beginning of December. And Uh, a lot of people don't understand they got much more sensitive hearing. So it sounds like like they they hear it. Houses away, and those things can be making sounds that we can't hear that mm-hmm. they are hearing. Well, and then you also uh, the lights that are on there as well, or like everybody has the laser lights now on right. their houses. Um, you know, dogs like people they don't just see in just black, white, and gray. They see certain colors too, and a lot of times red is one of the colors they see. And of right. course, the season of green and red <laughs> is upon us, and my dogs try to chase a red laser light because it bounces off for the neighbor's house window and it hits the sidewalk so literally you just hear and you'll see like the little light going across the sidewalk my one dog almost pulled me down because she started chasing it and that freaked out her brother because he's like well what's happening again (laughs) i was not expecting it but i couldn't be mad at them because they're puppies they have never seen a laser light before and it's just something that enticed them it attracted them um i know now that i have a laser light for them to play with which again is horrible for me to do because now when they see that light they get excited and try to play with it but i make it to where i hold a treat in my hand so when they see the light they know it's not time to play you follow my hand you try to get the treat and we get past the house then they get the treat if i fall they're not getting the treat but 
if yes. we can successfully get past yeah. the house, that's good. That's and a great tip. Yeah, they, they get excited more for food than the actual light. And so that's what people, you know, again, you don't think of these things because, you know, you see them every year. You see them. You're desensitized from them. These are some puppies' first times ever seeing these things. And so just like when we first started getting inflatables in the yard, everybody would drive and slow down the car and go, oh, that's cool. What do you think your dog is going to do? <laughs> like, they're going to get excited as well. Um, so you got to think of outside things and, you know, trying to keep your pet, again, calm and relaxed, especially for um, days when there's snow or ice on the ground. You don't want your dog to freak out and you slip and fall because if you fall on ice, especially if you're a little older, you know, you can let go of that leash. And if right. you're walking on a sidewalk next to busy cars, something bad can happen. So you yeah. always want to make sure you try to have your dog's attention. Um, in the house, you know, it's kind of the same thing. Christmas trees um, right. for dogs and for cats. Cats just love those low-hanging they ornaments. They love the ornaments. They love trees. You are literally putting up a toy once a year for your dog and a cat. We actually started hanging these little bell ornaments on the bottom branches so the cats can make to them. To distract right. them. See, <laughs> that's a good distraction. But, again, he put up a favorite toy once a year for his cat. Um, we have some owners that try to put, like, little cages around the cat tree mm -hmm. um, to see if they can keep the cat from climbing up them because the worst thing you can do is your cat can go up a tree and it falls. Right. You don't want it to fall on a person, a child, your other pet. If you have a fireplace going, a tree gets too close to a fireplace, that could be worst case scenarios. They do have anchors for trees that most people don't think of, especially if you have a high tree that's next to the ceiling yeah. you can put a little anchor or a hook up there right to the ceiling tie a string and yeah it's right to the ceiling so if the dog hits it the cat hits it or even children is safe right you know it's not going to go anywhere i'm um, lucky my cats have never tried to climb the tree my cat has tried he has knocked it down the first time that's what made me i tied it to the wall and now that tree's not going anywhere but my cat was one of the ones who knocked it down and it landed on my dog and they knocked oh. yeah it was luckily it was a smaller tree then but now i have a bigger tree yeah and i don't want my big tree to fall on anybody right so now it's anchored to my wall and, and not going anywhere um, but you know, for ornaments, they have shatterproof ornaments for cases like right. this. Um, I was just telling Dr. Hosick, we have had a cat, um, shatter a glass ornament in eight pieces of it. So, um, yeah. we luckily the cat, you know, it ate glass, so it ate anything. Mm -hmm. Um, we were able to feed it a, a bunch of bland diet and bread and help coat the stomach and everything. And the cat passed it beautifully, which we're lucky. But, you know, had the owner not caught that soon enough or had the cat not been as lucky, that could have just torn right, right through the, the stomach, the intestines, everything like that. Luckily, the cat's still with us, but these are things you have to think of. If you have something sharp or glass and you have dogs or cats in your house, you want to either make sure they're higher up on a tree. Right. Or don't or, use them. Yeah, don't use them um, because that's just asking for something to happen, yeah. um, especially if you have pets who like to eat things. Um, and then just be aware of certain ornaments. Like if you have a, um, like my dad has a stuffed Santa ornament and fine, he doesn't have any animals at his house. Beautiful. But if I were to put that on my house, my dog would think it would be a stuffed toy. 
and try to rip it off the tree. Right. So if you have ornaments that are of sentimental value for you, again, don't put them up or put them higher on the tree right. where that pet cannot get them. Um, and then just other things, strings of lights, tensils. Um, these are all things that very dangerous. Very that are very dangerous. And for most pets, these are toys for them. Right. Um, we have cats who eat tinsel all the time. And it, it binds up in their intestinal tract. Mm-hmm. It's called a linear foreign body. The intestines just bunch across it. Starts to slice through them. Mm-hmm. Has, have to have surgery. Yep, it does not end well. I think it's most just... cat owners know about this now, but dogs will eat it too. Yep. They'll, that strings of tinsel, that's just kind of the furry stuff, they'll mm-hmm. eat that too. They will eat that right off the wall. And then the cords, the got to be careful with those electrical cords. Yeah. They chew those and they can get shocked or something All like right. that. They can get a, severe burns mm-hmm. or electrical shocks in their mouths. Yeah, these are things, again, you don't think about it because they're right. pretty, but especially uh, kittens and puppies, these are their first time seeing right. these things, so they're going to try to get excited for them. And there's oftentimes thinner wires than you'd normally have, like a normal extension cord. Mm-hmm. So this is something that they're going to bite through. They're going to chew on. Yeah. Um, so they do have yuck spray, um, specifically right. cat yuck spray and then dog yuck spray um i don't know what the difference is i've tasted both they're both disgusting um but there are some animals that will still eat it there are some that will still eat it yes they are um but they do have some specifically for cats and some specifically for dogs um so if you are planning on putting something up I would put up some yuck spray um i would put up a barrier or i'll put you know make sure when you plug things block it so you know your pet cannot get to it um i make sure that when i plug up things i have a little um actual like cord box that i got Mm -hmm. online that you can hide the plugs in because my cat loves to go back there and mess with the plugs um so these are things you know just simple things that you don't really think about until it's too late unfortunately um and then and the other thing is uh, animals drinking from the live tree Stands. Water, yeah. My wife put this formula in that's supposed to be fire retardant, but it's very toxic stuff in there. Mm-hmm. So you have to cover that up and yeah. they, so they can't get access to it because they will get in and they'll drink. They drink from toilets. Yes. What makes you think they won't drink from a tree? Well, stand? and then certain trees for cats are poisonous. Yeah. So if you have a cat in your house, you need to make sure you do certain research before you bring it in, just like certain plants. Poinsettias plants this time of year are very, very toxic to cats. Um, this is just like Easter lilies during Easter time. Right. They are pretty and you don't think about it, but you give them to your cat and that's just going to be instant kidney failure and that's not something that you you know a beautiful flower you, you don't want to associate with something that could have harmed your cat right. um so if you plan on bringing flowers in a house use artificial ones those are great um but again if you're going to bring real ones in your house you have to make sure there's some place where your pet can't reach right. them where they can't reach that water and then the trees again make sure the water is something they can't lick and make sure yeah. it's not a poisonous tree to your pet um, a lot of the pins and needles that fall from certain trees, if a cat eat it, they can um, hurt their mouth or get into their stomach too and yeah. um, interrupt just something a lot there. Of irritation. Yeah. So there's just a lot, go th- a lot of thinking. A lot of things to think about. Yes, when you have pets, especially young ones for their first holidays. Right. So if it's a new pet, when you're putting out your Christmas decorations, just think: if would I put it out if there was a baby here? Mm-hmm. Um, if my pet happens to get into this, is it going to cause any harm? Mm-hmm. So it's just a, a new mindset, and then you get used to it. Yeah. And some animals just totally ignore it and they're fine, but you have to see how they're going to respond. Yep. There's a lot of good tips for that. 
All right, next week we're going to be moving to another gland in the body. We're going to be moving to the adrenal gland. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about overactive adrenal glands called Cushing's disease. Mm-hmm. So that'll be kind of neat. That's something that affects both cats and dogs. So tune in next week for that. And until next time, hope you have a great holiday. Happy New Year. I'm Dr. Jim Hosek. I'm Brittany. We'll see you. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to The Pet Factor with Dr. Jim Hosek and Brittany Reeves.